0: Mark chapter 12, we're going to be looking at verses 28 through 34 this morning, we'll be looking at the same verses next week, we've got some things to cover in them. Starting in Mark chapter 12, verse 28, it says, "...and one of the scribes came and heard them arguing." Remember, Jesus was arguing with the Sadducees about life after death. "...and recognizing that Jesus had answered them well, he asked him, "'What commandment is the foremost of all?' Jesus answered and said, "'The foremost is here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord.'" And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you've truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself Is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this sweet interaction that we have before us. Seems that this man came to you, Lord. With good intentions, honestly and sincerely seeking your opinion. Pray that it would be that we would come in the same way this morning, Lord. That we would come here with open hearts, honest hearts, truly seeking your opinion for our lives. Yours is the only one that matters. Jesus, what is most important for our lives? What should consume us? How should we live? What should we be mindful of? How does it play out in our daily lives? Lord, we want to hear from you. We want to have a sweet interaction as you had with this man. And we don't want to be found near to the kingdom of God. We want to be firmly placed within the kingdom of God. So speak to us today, Jesus. I ask that you would anoint your word by your grace beautifully. That you would quiet our hearts that we might hear our loving Savior and King speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Jesus has been having these interactions all week long. You'll remember that in our text, we're in the Passion Week, and he's been having these interactions with different members of the religious ruling party there were the pharisees and there were the uh, chief priests and the sadducees and the elders and now this final group the scribes and so a scribe comes to the lord and the scribes were responsible for both interpreting and helping to be applied to the lives of the jews the old testament when there was a question on interpretation, they would come to the scribe. When there was a question on how does this Old Testament precept apply to my life, they would come to one of these scribes. And so he comes and he asks the honest question. What is the greatest or most important commandment in all of the Old Testament? It was a common thought among them to ask that question because they were frequently asked similar questions. And it would have behooved them, and it would have behooved the nation of Israel for them to be able to give succinct and simple answers. Here is the summation of the law of God. Here is what is at the heart of it. Here is the core of it. Here is it in its simplicity, because in the Old Testament, there are 613 commandments. 365 of them negative, 248 positive. We know from history that this was a common thought. How can we boil those 613 commandments down into into something simple? When we read about the reigning rabbis of the day, or the most prominent rabbis of the day, they were Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel. And we're told in uh, history that a Gentile, a non-Jew, came to these rabbis and asked them separately. Said, Rabbi, Tell me the whole of the law while standing on one leg. Meaning, give it to me simply, give it to me succinctly, give it to me in a way that I can understand, give it to me short, do it on one leg. And Rabbi Shammai said, this is not possible. But Rabbi Hillel said this, What you yourself hate, do not do to others. This is the whole of the law, the rest is commentary. We're told in history that the Gentile left unimpressed and chose chose not to convert to Judaism that day. Why was he unimpressed? There's nothing supernatural in that. There's nothing supernatural in that. What you hate, don't do it to anyone else. That's not supernatural. That's like common sense. You see, in true religion, there ought to be a touch and a sense and a reality of the supernatural. And it was lacking In Rabbi Hillel's answer, and so he went away unimpressed. Compare that to what Jesus had to say on the subject. He said, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The rabbi put it in the negative, Jesus put it in the positive, which is much more supernatural because it's much more difficult. Do unto others what you, and the idea is, wish that at the very best case scenario they would do to you, but they probably never will. Do that unto others. Now there's a challenge. It's in the same vein of other things Jesus has said, such as love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. These are revolutionary ideas in our society now, and they were revolutionary ideas then. And ultimately for us, when we're confronted with those in Scripture, what they do is they show us our need for a Savior, don't they? Because we read those things and we say, who can do those things? There can be for a time some sort of um, external observance. That's not what God is looking for, is he? He's not looking for outward religiosity. He's looking for an inward, real heart conversion and commitment. And apart from salvation and being made brand new in the Lord, it's impossible to live those commandments of Jesus. But when we enter into a relationship with him, we leave the possible and we step into the supernatural realm of living. And so Jesus answers this question, what are the, great, the two greatest commandments and he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5, and Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Leviticus chapter 6, verse 4 says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your soul, mind, and strength. And then Leviticus nineteen eleven, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he took those from the first five books there, the books of Moses, and he placed them together, and he came up with the two greatest commandments. The reason why loving God with everything in you and loving others as yourself are the two greatest commandments is because everything else flows from those. All of spirituality, all of what the Lord is calling us to do in this world, all of walking with Jesus Christ flows out of loving him with everything in us and loving others as ourselves. If we get those two, then everything else falls in line. Take, for example, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments found in Exodus chapter 20. The first four of them, in case you don't know, are directed toward the Lord. They have to do with how we relate to God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any idol or graven image. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain and remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Now you take those first four of the Ten Commandments, and if you would simply do what Jesus said is the greatest commandment, "Love the Lord your God with everything in you," then those they never even have to enter into your mind. If you love the Lord your God with everything in you, you're never going to put another God before Him. You're not going to make some stupid idol out of your car or something. You're never going to take the Lord's name in vain. And remembering the Sabbath, the Lord's day, and keeping it holy will be a joy for you because you can't wait to commune with the Lord and set apart a day for Him. You see how, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, you do the first commandment, the rest falls in line. It's the same with the last six of the Ten Commandments, they're directed toward how we relate to others. Honor your mother and father, which is the first commandment with a promise of long life. You shall not murder shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not lie, and you shall not covet your neighbor's junk. Now, these last six having to do with others. If we love our neighbor as ourselves, then these will naturally fall in line. By the way, biblically defined, your neighbor is anyone in your immediate proximity that you can help. It doesn't just mean the person that you live next to. Anyone that you come across in your life that you can help becomes your neighbor, biblically speaking. And if we love them as ourselves, there's not going to be the issue of murder. There will never be the issue of adultery. There won't be lying. There won't be stealing. These two take care of everything else. It is the heart of it. It is the summation of it. It is the whole of the law. And what Jesus' answer reveals are two very important facts. Number one, it reveals that God is a God of love. Because what was foremost on his mind when asked the question was love. You shall love the Lord your God. God is a God of love. And the second thing it points out to us is that love for God and love for man cannot be divided. Next week when we speak on that subject, we'll see it in very clear terms in the book of First John. In fact, here's your homework for this week. Your homework for this week is to read the book of First John. Read the book of 1 John, keeping in mind how it tells us how we ought to deal with others, with our brothers. But today we're just going to deal with number one, loving the Lord your God with all your hearts. When Jesus started his answer, he said, "Here, Israel. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This was very common to the people in Israel. When Jesus began to quote Deuteronomy 6.4, every Jew listening would say, oh, I know that. Because at that time and today, every observant Jew prays or begins their morning prayers with that phrase from Deuteronomy 6.4. And they begin their evening prayer with that phrase from Deuteronomy 6.4. If you've seen religious Jews, when they're praying, um, the Orthodox, they bind a little box on the front of their head, and they wrap their arm in this thing. They're called phylacteries. We have a little picture of it for you up here. There you go. You see the little box on his forehead and the little thing on his arm? Those of you who went to Israel with us last year, we saw it all over, especially when we were at the Western Wall. What this is, what the Jews have in mind here, is in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says concerning the commandments of God that they should be on your head, and at your right hand. What the Lord means by that is they should be ever before you. The commandment of the Lord should be ever before you, ever on your mind, as Colossians says, set your heart and mind on the things above, not the things of this world. And when it says they shall be on your right hand, it means they shall be ever near you. Your right hand is nearest to your heart. They shall be ever near to you, was as the Lord was saying. But the jews god bless them they figured well we'll put a little box on our head and we'll wrap it in our arms and in that box and on that thing around their arm it's called phylactery is deuteronomy 6 4 and some other verses which make up something that is called the shema shema is a hebrew word for here they call it the shema because it starts with deuteronomy 6 4 hear, Israel, the lord our god the lord is one in Hebrew, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. You want to learn it? Okay, look. Uh, you have the English down below. That's a translation, but the ones above, underlined there, is a transliteration. A transliteration is when you just switch the characters of the alphabet. A translation is when you switch the whole language. So transliteration allows us in English to read what should be pronounced in Hebrew. you have the English translation underneath. So let's try it together. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. You got to spit a little bit. You got to get some phlegm moving on that. It's part of the Hebrew language. Echad. Let's try it again. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. That's fun, huh? You guys know some Hebrew. You could go impress somebody or embarrass yourself, depending on who it is. So he starts out with something that is very familiar. And then in the next verse is where he drives it home. He says very clearly, you shall love the Lord with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. This wasn't to present different parts of us. It was to say all of you. You, individually. You're to love the Lord your God with all of your being, with everything that is within you, with the entirety of who you are. You're to commit yourself to loving the Lord. And as I said before, all the rest of the Christian and the spiritual life flows from that. It's been said before, if you do the do's, the don'ts take care of themselves. That's to say, if you do the positive commandments in the Bible, the don'ts are not an issue. If you do this do, every don't takes care of itself. Now, we need to ask ourselves these three questions about loving God. Number one, why should we love God? Number two, how should we love God? And number three, what if we don't love God? And realize, I'm speaking primarily to the Christian today. If you're not a Christian and you're here visiting... We love that you're here. You're welcome to be here always, but I'm speaking primarily to the Christian. Why should we love God? Well, 1 John chapter 4 verse 9, part of first 19, part of your homework this week says simply, "We love him because he first loved us." Why should we love God? Because he first loved us. That is the theological reasoning of why the Christian loves God. You need to understand about our God that he is not some unknown, distant, unreachable God who doesn't communicate to us that is simply saying you ought to love me but is totally out of touch, claims that he loves us from afar but there's no proof of it. That's not our God. Rather, our God has clearly demonstrated his love to us. Romans 5.8 God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God has proven that he loves you. Again, he's not some far off God that just says it. He proves it. In fact, he stepped into time and space to demonstrate it in Christ Jesus. It had been written in the scriptures for years. But there came a time in history where God said, I will clearly demonstrate. I will make it visible. I will prove it. I will make it tangible. For God so loved the world he gave God speaks about loving. There's always an action involved. It's not empty words. He demonstrated and he gave. And what is most significant is when we begin to ponder, when did the Lord do this? While we were yet sinners. Or as Romans chapter 5 verse 10 says, while we were yet enemies of God. When we were going against God when we're going in the opposite direction, when we are blowing him off, according to the Bible, enemies of God is when God loved you. That's why Jesus is able to say with all authority, love your enemies, because he did. God demonstrated his love while we were yet sinners. God made the first move and what an amazing move it is in the cross. And so here is what is right. Listen, we talk about the commandments of God We talk about being instructed in what is morally right. This is what is right. That we respond to God's love with love. There comes the responsibility of reciprocity. That there needs to be a return here. It's a relationship that God calls us into. And like any other healthy relationship, there's got to be some give and take. And so what is morally right in the mind of God is that we respond to His love with love. We love Him because He first loved us. This is the first and the greatest commandment that we love God with everything in us. And it's interesting that it's called a commandment. We sometimes have... Weird connotations attached to that phrase. You know what I mean? It, it carries like a negative connotation sometimes in our mind. But the book of First John, your homework this week, says the commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. And he does not command it because God is some sicko in heaven saying, you have to love me. That's not the idea there. Because he loves us, he is instructing us morally God is not a sicko saying, you must love me. That's not love. Rather, the reason he gives us the commandment is because man is sick. Is because man doesn't know how to respond to the love of God. And so God, in his father's heart, instructs his children and says, love with everything that is in you. So his commandments show us what is right in responding to love. We love them with everything in us. Anybody remember the first time that you told someone or your spouse, truly, truly, truly meant it, told someone that you love them? Anybody remember that? Not your mom and your dad. I'm the only one that remembers this. Do you remember being really afraid at that moment? Nervous? I don't know if it, I can remember when my wife and I, Kate, when we first said we loved each other. I can remember the moment. It was uh, the most scary moment in my life, because the feelings were so profound, they were so deep, and there was so much risk attached to them. If I say it, and she doesn't reciprocate, oh no, you understand what I'm saying? And uh, Oh. <laughs> brother's been there. <laughs> now, this is, that's basically the worst thing that could happen. Heartfelt, I love you, and they just go. That is a horrible moment. Now, you might have a reason for that cold-faced rejection because there's something about them you don't love and that's between people and that's fine. But that sort of lack of response in the face of the love declaration of God is wicked. That lack of response in the face of God's declaration of love is wrong because he has loved us with a perfect love. And there is no fault within him. And so there is zero reason not to respond with the entirety of our beings in love. But I want you to realize this. It's not as though God needs our love. Very important theological point. God is self-sufficient. He's all-sufficient. He does not need anything from you and I. But here's the gig. The Lord has chosen to invest himself relationally with humanity. God chose to do so. When he made man, he made a decision to invest relationally. And that investment means love, and God doesn't back out of his investments. We were created in the image of God. And part of, and probably the most profound meaning of that, is that we have the capacity to love. It doesn't mean we look like God. God is the Spirit. One of the primary meanings of being created in the image of God is meaning that we have the capacity of love, the capacity to feel, the capacity to express those things. And it is significant that God, in communicating to you and I, has chosen to express himself in terms like father, husband, friend, lover of your soul. God has chosen to express himself relationally to you and I in those terms. Because when we hear those terms, for most of us, they express love and connectedness. Now, there's other ways that we relate to God where he also calls himself our master. Our relationship with him is multifaceted. But Jesus said, at the response of the question of, Lord, teach us how to pray. Jesus said, when you pray, say our Father. In other words, that is the primary way to relate to your God is in that depth of intimacy and relationship. Understand, God has saved us for love. If he didn't save us for love, what did he save us for? He could have populated heaven with something else. He could have just made some other beings in heaven. It's not that you might just get to heaven. What did he save you for? He saved you to love him, to know him, not because he needs it, but he desires it because he has invested himself in this love relationship. For God so loved the world that he gave. Therefore, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Having said those things, it follows logically that to not love the Lord in that way is a sin. It's morally wrong. It's a sin. And some of you may disagree with that, but that means that you disagree with God and that is a bad situation to be in. Why do we love God? Because he first loved us. How should we love God? Three ways. Obeying, honoring, and praising. How do we love God? The Bible is very clear about this. First, obeying his word. Go to John chapter 14, please. John 14. John chapter 14, how do we love God? The first way is by obeying. Jesus said in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. No uncertain terms, right? It's like when your wife says, if you love me, you'll take out the trash. Okay, honey, I'll do it. No uncertain terms. I know what is required of me. Stupid example, but you know what I mean. Jesus defined it for us very clearly. What does it mean to love God? It means to obey his commandments. Look now in the next chapter, John 15 and verse 14. John 15, verse 14, he says it a little differently. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command. What does it mean to love God? What does it mean to have friendship with God? Because many Christians, if we had taken a survey at the beginning of this lesson, I said, who's a friend of God? Oh, I'm a friend of God. Who loves the Lord? I love the Lord. But then if we ask the question, who's obeying his commandments? Who's walking in a manner that is worthy? You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command. Now, his effort is outlined in verse 13 of John 15. Greater love has no one than this that one lay down his life for his friends. That's exactly what Jesus did upon the cross. He says here, there is no greater love in all the earth than that one would lay down his life for his friends, which is what Jesus did. And then in verse 14 comes the reciprocity or the right moral response. I lay down my life for you if you're my friend. To respond, then you obey my commandments. And we have the idea of relationship expressed by Jesus in verse 15. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. That speaks of relationship, of communication, of um, sharing. How do we develop a deep relationship? We share our deepest thoughts, the deepest things about us. The Lord here is saying, I call you friends because of things that the Father tells me, I communicate them to you. You see how relationship is expressed clearly? And there's given what God did, how we respond, and then a confirmation that it is a relationship. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's all I have to say about that. There's no commentary that can be given to that. It's over. It's dry cut. It's simple. That is the litmus test. Am I loving the Lord? Well, just take stock of your life and say, am I obeying the Lord? Now, let me balance this here. We all sin. None of us will become sinless until we see him face to face in heaven. Bible teaches that. We all sin. What we're talking about here is not sinlessness but rather a lifestyle of obedience. That our life is characterized by earnestly following the Lord and wanting to obey as opposed to having the attitude of, well, how much can I get away with and still be all right with God? That is from the pit of hell, friends. Find it hard to believe that someone could be indwelt by the Spirit of God and have that mindset. You don't understand the cross of Christ. You don't understand the depth of his love to respond and say, okay, cool, I'm saved and everything, but how much can I get away with and still be all right with him? Imagine if that was a relationship I had with my wife. How much can I get away with with this woman and still be cool, still have her make dinner for me? That, that, that's That's wrong. That's wrong. And it's wrong to think that with the Lord. The attitude is not, how much can I get away with? But the right moral response is, Lord, how closely can I follow thee? How much can I strive to please thee through obedience? How greatly can I walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling? Lord, teach me thy word that I might walk in obedience. That is the right moral response. Not to say that we won't fail, we will. But it's characterized by a lifestyle of obedience. First John chapter two, your homework, I've got a PowerPoint for you, says it wonderfully. First John chapter two verse four. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not he keep his commandments is a liar. Truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. That's the call upon the Christian. If you love the Lord, obey his commandments. But listen to how good God is. It doesn't stop there. That's where some of the religions of the world stop. Is they set this high standard and they say, now try to get it. Like uh, the master holding the bone above his dog going, come on, jump, jump. And you never give him the bone. Lord gives us the bone, you understand. He doesn't hold it up and say, now try to get it and put us into a lifetime of frustration. Ezekiel chapter 36, speaking of the new covenant, says this, Ezekiel 36, 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. And then, moreover, I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a soft heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You will then be careful to observe my ordinances. God command. God's commandments are his enablements. It would have been enough if he just cleansed us, as it says in the first verse. But then it says that he took out our old funky heart, that he put in a nice new heart. He put his spirit upon us. He wrote his law upon our hearts and he causes us, enables us, empowers us to obey him. God is so good. The Bible is so wonderful. It's so right. His commandments are his enablements. He's called us to obey and he's given us the power by his Holy Spirit to do so. If we don't obey, if you're not obeying in your life, a general lifestyle of obedience and wanting to please the Lord, and that's your choice. Because 1 Corinthians 10, 1 says, no temptation has overcome you except for that which is common to man. But God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond that which you're able to bear, but with the temptation provides a way out. And so if you're walking in a lifestyle of disobedience, you're choosing that. You can't say the devil made me do it. Because the Bible says that the devil's been defeated. He cannot make you do anything. He can tempt you and you can follow after him, but that was your choice. The Bible's very clear that we have the victory over sin. Second way that we love God after obeying his word is honoring his glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, one of my favorite verses. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In the context there, Paul was talking about partaking in food and drink that had been sacrificed to idols and how that was stumbling some Christians. But then he applies it broadly. He says, whether you eat or drink, or by the way, anything that you do as a Christian, here's the guideline, do it to the glory of God. You see, if we truly love the Lord, if we truly respond to His love, then our concern is always for His glory. It's always for His glory. God, what's going to further your kingdom? What's going to bring fame to your name? What is going to glorify you? Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. What this does is it eliminates those gray areas. You know what I mean by the gray areas? Just normal life just normal life where you either because of ignorance of the word of God, or just because it's not there specifically in the very word, you just are in a situation, you go, I don't know if I should do this, I don't know what to do in this situation, and it might be something by the way that is totally morally neutral. It might be just going, partaking in a certain activity or pursuing some other pursuit that in itself is morally neutral. But remember, James chapter four, last verse says, to him who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. And so the question that we ask in daily life as Christians is, Lord, will this bring you glory? Oy vey. I'm so convicted right now. Lord, will this bring you glory? What I'm about to do, what I'm about to say, God have mercy Will that bring you glory? That is a litmus test. It eliminates those gray areas. Sometimes when people come to me for counseling, they say, I'm kind of involved in so-and-so, in this and that. What do you think? I say, well, how would you feel about watching it or doing it if Jesus was right there with you? That's the response usually. Oh, (laughs) I don't think I'd do it then. He is with you. Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He is. How do we love God? We obey his commandments. And we glorify him in everything that we do. Do it to his glory, meaning according to and for. One who says he abides in Christ ought to walk in the same manner as he walked. And now here's the third point in how we love God. We love God by praising his name. We love God by praising his name. do want you to go to Psalm 145. Psalm 145. When you get there, just hold on. Don't read it yet. We'll read it together in a minute. We love the Lord by obeying his commandments, glorifying him in our daily actions, and praising his name. That means expressing verbally now. Okay, listen. We're moving from actions now to something that is primarily verbal. It means expressing verbally our love for the Lord. Putting into words how we feel about him. To pray simply means to speak highly of. When we sing songs and we say, I praise you, Lord, it's kind of funny to say that. Because what you're saying is, I speak highly of you, Lord, so speak highly of him. It's cool. He knows what we mean. We know what we mean. But to praise means to speak highly of, to speak well of. Praising his name is saying, I love you to the Lord. It's pictured wonderfully in the word that God chose from the Greek language for worship. In the New Testament, the word for worship is proskaneo. Comes from two Greek words, pros and kaneo. Pros meaning to turn toward, kaneo meaning to kiss. When God said, I want a New Testament word that expresses my heart for how I feel about my people worshiping me, I'm going to choose proskaneo. I want them to understand that I view their worship as them turning toward me and kissing me as a father. That's how God views it. Worship and praising are a little different. We're talking about praising, simply saying in words, I love you, Lord, and speaking about how wonderful he is. Now, to many, this is a strange concept. To many within the church in America, this seems weird and it might be classified as emotionalism, but I want you to think about it rationally for a minute. As I said before, we are created in the image of God. A primary meaning of that is that we have the capacity to love, to feel emotion, to express emotion. As humans, God has designed in us that we need to hear the words, I love you. People that grow up never hearing those words have issues. Every person, because God made us creatures of love, and because he is the love of God, needs to hear the words, I love you. Please say it to your loved ones frequently. God has designed us emotionally that we need that. Humans need to hear that, but God wants to hear that. Remember, he doesn't need it. He's not emotionally needy. God has emotions, that's clear in the Bible, but God doesn't sin. God is not emotionally needy like we are. He doesn't need to hear it, but he delights in hearing it. He loves to hear his children come and say, I love you. This is clearly evidence in scriptures. We'll see in a moment. Think about this with me. Much of the word of God is God speaking to you and I. But there is a portion of the word of God that is directed To God. God speaking to God through a man. Much of the word of God is spoken to you and I from God. But there is a portion of the word of God that is the word of God to God. Inspired and authored by the Holy Spirit, but through a person. And what those words show us is what is the right way to speak to God in terms of affection what is morally correct in expressing love to him. Now, with that in mind, Psalm 146 or 145. Gee, I better go there. Psalm 145. Listen to David here. All these Psalms that we're going to read right now are from David. David says, I will extol thee. He's speaking to God directly. My God, O King. This is the word of God to God. It's the word of God. It's authored by God, but it's through the man David. I will extol thee, my God, O King. I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise thy name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise thy works to another. And shall declare thy mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of thy majesty and on thy wonderful works, I will meditate. And men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts. And I'm going to tell of your greatness, and shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundance goodness, and I will shout joyfully of thy righteousness. Listen to what the psalmist says here the word of God to God through the man. I'm going to bless you every day. Not a day will go by that I will not speak highly of you, God. the context here is in front of other men with his mouth verbalizing it. Says the Lord is highly to be praised. He says he will declare, he will meditate, he will tell to others, he will utter, and he will shout joyfully. That is the language of the Bible. That is the word of God telling us what is Right? What is the correct way to express our love to the Lord? Not the only way. But it's impossible to escape the Old Testament precedent of praise here. It's impossible to ignore this as a well-balanced biblical Christian. You cannot. And I want you to note there that he says, I will shout joyfully. Man, we go to sporting events. Nobody's afraid. You see the guys that got their shirt off. Half of them painted this color, half that color. Ah! Ah! Freaking out. Over guys throwing a ball. I watched the Super Bowl, I was the same way. Oh, oh no! I was rooting for the Eagles. Why are we willing to do for men throwing a ball what we're not willing to do for the savior of our souls? Why do we get together with men and go, hooray, he made it! but we're afraid in the congregation of the Lord to say, thank you, God. God, you're wonderful. You're amazing. You're beautiful. You're perfect in every way. Because someone might see me. So? You're not talking to them. You're talking to the Lord. I'm not talking about being distracting. I'm talking about being biblical. Psalm 146, verses 1 and 2. says, praise the Lord, or a little more Hebrew for you, Hallel Yah, Hallel being one of the Hebrew words for praise, Yah being the name of the Lord, Hallelujah, we say in English, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, O my soul, I will praise the Lord while I live, I will sing praises to my God while I have my being, and you might add in your margin for fun, no matter what. You see, the dictate of the word of God, the word of God to God is, I will praise him as long as I have my being. Psalm 147, verse 1. Praise the Lord, or hallelujah, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is becoming. Look what it says there. Praise the Lord because it's good, it is morally right, it is correct, it is the right thing to do to praise him. Other translations say it is fitting or it is appropriate for the people of God. And it says there that praise is becoming, or as the King James Version says, comely, meaning suitable to the wearer. When you put on an attitude of praise, it is suitable before God. Remember, he's the one that you care is watching. Suitable to the wearer, attractive, pleasant to look at. You put on the mantle, the attitude of praise. The Lord says it's good and it's beautiful. That's the word of God to God. Now, there's many who, as I alluded to earlier, say it's just not manly. It just isn't manly to say, I love you, Lord. Lord, I love you, but I want you to think about David, the psalmist. There has never been a gnarlier man than David, the psalmist. When David was telling King Saul, I can kill that giant. By the grace of God and the power of God, I can deal with him. He told him, his testimony was, I killed a lion and a bear with my bare hands when they came after my little sheepies. I can deal with Goliath. He's a lion killer, a bear killer, a giant killer. And then when it came to fighting on behalf of God in Israel, they used to sing of Saul. Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. There was no badder man than David in all the land. He made Braveheart and the gladiator look like little girls. (laughs) He was a man's man. And yet we see in his own language in Psalm 18, verse 1, I love you, O Lord, my strength. This man, this warrior, I love you, O Lord, my strength. Psalm 26, verse 8. Oh, Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. In other words, I love to be with you, Lord, expressing it verbally to our God. And then in Psalm 31, 23, he says, Oh, love the Lord, all you his godly ones. That's manly language. That's the language of the Bible. That's the language of a man who was doing it right. The Bible declares of David, he was a man after God's own heart. I often speak to couples about their marriages. And one of the major disconnects that we see there is in communication. The man doesn't know how to communicate to his wife in terms that she understands that he loves her. This is always a problem. So many of the men think, well, I go to work all day. I put food on the table. I bought her a car and a ring. I come home, I'm tired. She should just know I love her. Make me say it. Make me do things. There's always continually I speak to couples, there's always this disconnect. You see, unless you communicate in a way that they understand or can internalize or accept or is meaningful to them, you haven't communicated anything. And so in marriages, if a woman needs to be communicated to in a certain way, it is the obligation of the man to communicate with her in that way. First Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Husbands, dwell with your wives in an understanding way that your prayers may not be hindered. And it goes the same way for wives and husbands. You need to communicate love to them in a way that is meaningful. The word of God to God, as we've been reading, is what teaches us to communicate to God in a meaningful way. This is the Old Testament precedent for praise. In the New Testament, it hasn't changed. Hebrews chapter 13, Let us therefore then offer up the sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. It hasn't changed Old Covenant to New Covenant. God still desires to hear you and I speak to him words of love. Some Christians say, well, Brit, God looks upon the heart. And I may not be saying anything, but in my heart, ooh, it's a party for the Lord. (laughs) Jesus disagrees. Jesus said in the Gospels, the mouth speaks from that which overflows the heart, from that which fills the heart. If there is praise in your heart for God, it will come forth from your mouth, according to Jesus Christ. Both privately and corporately. Are you speaking words of love to God? Privately and corporately. Being being obedient? Yes, absolutely. And if we were cavemen with no language then our deeds, just simple obedience, would be enough. We couldn't say, I love you, Lord. Just do the right thing. If we were cavemen, that would be enough. But since God has given us language, he expects us to use it to communicate to him with our mouths. David the psalmist never said, it's in my heart. Too bad you can't read my heart. Never said that. Many would say, okay, all right, okay. I'll do it alone, but I won't do it in front of people. I'm embarrassed. It's weird. Psalm 149, verse 1. Psalm 149, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Sing to the Lord a new song. And his praise in the congregation of the godly ones. That's us. That's you and I. It was Israel then. It's the church now. You and I. Sing praises to the Lord with your mouth in the midst of the people. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the sons of Zion rejoice with their king. Let them praise his name with dancing. What? Dancing? No. No can't dance. The Bible says you can. I'm not talking about being distracting. If there's 800 people all clapping and you come and do... <laughs> down the aisle, uh, praise God. <laughs> there's a fine line. It takes some discernment. It takes listening to the Holy Spirit. And it takes some accountability to be between freedom of worship and distracting others. Okay, listen. It's going to be times because we are a congregation that seeks to worship God with all that is within us. That there will be times that some of us will distract others. You know what? If you're distracted, close your eyes. God is spirit, you can't see him anyway. What are you looking at? The words? There's like five in every song. <laughs> they're praise songs, they're not complicated. If you're distracted by the person in front of you, close your eyes. If you're distracting someone in front of you, ask the Lord. Should I do this here or is this for my closet? Maybe I should adjust a little bit. You understand we got to get along. We're a body. There's going to be some give and there's going to be some take. And we're going to make mistakes. Okay? There's going to be a time where maybe someone does something and you just go, "Ah, I'm leaving. I'm never coming back. Don't do that. Extend grace to them and to the church and say, you know what? Okay, we'll, we'll work through that. There may be someone next to you and everybody's just praising the Lord and they're like this. When's this over? <laughs> I see it all the time. You know what? Extend a little grace. When I first started going to church, I would come after the first set of worship was done, sneak in during announcements, hear the message, and then run out during the closing prayer. Faber Chapel, Santa Barbara. Didn't want anything to do with worship. It was weird. Now, preaching, I can take it or leave it. Love to worship the Lord. Love it. Where were we? Oh, let them praise his name with dancing. Let them sing praises to him with timbrel and lyre. Li- li- for the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. Let the godly ones exult in joy. Let them sing for joy on their beds, corporate and private. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. That is life. The praises of God in our mouth and the word of God in our hands. We'll end with Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his great excellence. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with harp and lyre, Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Sometimes people say to worship it too loud. It's too much. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. So right, so wonderful, so true. We just want to be a church who is according to your word. And Lord, if there be anyone in here today that they don't feel, I'm talking about the Christians, Lord, that they don't feel that love for you. Pray that you would help them to respond in obedience and not in feeling. That they would know it is morally right to love you. And as they change their minds about that, God, we trust you to change their hearts. Pray that those would begin to develop a relationship with you. and we'd be willing to repent together and say, Lord, we have not loved you rightly. We have not loved you enough. God, forgive us. Help us to obey. Help us to glorify. Help us to praise and to say, I love you. Lord, free us to do that in a way that honors you, in a way that pleases you. Clothe us in praise, God. We would pray corporately now that you would place upon us the mantle of praise, that we would learn to say, God, I love you we love you. You are worthy. Do that work, Lord. Do it in our hearts. Do it because it's right according to you, and it's for your honor, for your glory, for your praise. Amen.